Friends, we're returning again to the story of David, once the young man taking on the giant Goliath with nothing but faith and a stone, and today, in our scripture at the other end of his life, in the tragic culmination of his prior faithlessness, which we heard last week. It is our final week traveling with David, and while his story continues for a short while further in Scripture, this final episode of great loss and grief overshadows it all. Yet even here, in the throes of tragedy, there is a hint of hope, an inbreaking of the good news, an opportunity to see anew that God is steadfast love and the source of all redemption. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So I shared last Sunday about my struggle to appreciate board games, but I have realized in the time since that I forgot to name the exception to the rule. There is one board game I have long loved, and that is chess. I've been playing and loving chess for a long time now, beginning particularly in middle school, when my friends and I would play chess during lunch period every day. It was a practice birthed out of boredom when one of us discovered that you could draw a chessboard on graph paper, you could write in the pieces, and then move them on the board simply by erasing them and rewriting them in their new square. And as we learned and started honing our most basic skills in the game, we graduated to a little travel board one of my friends brought from home, then a little magnetic pieces, tiny pegs with a little sticker on them, identifying which piece it was, and we would huddle around this tiny little board and strategize our moves. In retrospect, the fact that I played chess with my friends over lunch in middle school probably tells you everything you have ever needed to know about me. Years later in college, a friend of mine took up chess and introduced me to some of the basic theory and anal analysis I didn't even realize existed when I was sitting on a hard plastic table in a middle school cafeteria trying to remember how each of the pieces just moved. And among the tools of that basic analysis is the idea that every piece on a chessboard can be assigned a point value, demonstrating its relative value to the other pieces in the game. So basically, there are some very valuable pieces and some not-so-valuable pieces. We're going to see how many of you can make an educated guess about which is which. Any guesses on what is the least valuable piece on a chessboard? Pawn. The pawn, absolutely. The pawn is worth a single point, basically worthless. And the most valuable piece? Queen. The queen, absolutely right. The queen is worth nine points. And then in the middle is the rook or the castle, which is worth five points, while the bishops and the knights are both worth three points. By the way, I'm not exactly sure what to do with the fact that a bishop, a leader of the church, is represented on chessboard at all, or the fact that it's only a measly three points in value. The only piece on the board that is not given a value is the king, because the whole point of a chess game is to protect the king. Each of the pieces value is relative to their ability to protect the king, and knowing their value then is helpful in weighing out when to trade or sacrifice a piece for a tactical or strategic advantage. Sometimes it's worth, worth the cost to lose a piece for the sake of protecting the king and securing a victory. This is, in essence, King David's story, a king determined to protect his position against all who might challenge him, and one prepared to bear the cost of loss along the way 
secure his victory. And last week's scripture, David marshaled his resources and considerable authority to cover up his rape of Bathsheba by murdering her husband. And while the cover-up is successful, David is confronted all the same by the prophet Nathan, who declares that this sin of his has triggered a massive spiral of destruction in David's kingdom and in his own family. And as the story unfolds, David is left in this tenuous position and left maneuvering his pieces in an effort to remain king. And he does eventually succeed, conquering those who wish to overthrow him. But it costs him more than he ever anticipated. There is a legend about the origin of chess, that when the game was first created, its inventor brought the game to the ruler of the land, and the king was delighted and impressed upon learning about the game and playing it, and so offered the inventor of chess a reward of their own achievement. And the inventor responded by saying, I only wish for this. Give me one grain of wheat for the first square of the chess board, two grains of wheat for the next square, four for the next, eight for the next, and so on for all 64 squares, with each square having double the number of grains as the square before. The king happily agrees, surprised that the inventor would ask for such a low price. But when the officials of the treasury attempt to gather the reward, they discover that the inventor has asked for far more than the king had realized, more wheat than could be found in the entirety of his kingdom, and in fact, more wheat than can be grown across the entire globe in a single year. Beginning with a single grain and doubling it so many times meant that the inventor had actually requested more than 18 quintillion, or that is 18 billion billion grains of wheat, which all told would weigh more than 2 quadrillion pounds and nearly equal the volume of Lake Ontario. The king had miscalculated. What seemed at first a reasonable price quickly became a cost too great to bear. To fully understand today's scripture, we begin where we left off last week, to follow the story's twists and turns as David begins to experience the consequences of his sin. And we meet a new character along the way. His name is Absalom. Absalom is the third son of his father, King David, and brother, the Tim. This is important because David's eldest son, Amnon, quickly follows in his father's ways and takes what he cannot have, concocting an elaborate plot to rape his half-sister. This enrages Absalom. In fact, he enrages decent people everywhere, including the king. But while David is angry, he declines either to punish or forgive his eldest son. Instead, David does not. So two years later, Absalom has his revenge, and in contriving the murder of his brother Amnon, he too follows in his father's ways, who once plotted the murder of Bathsheba's husband. And so Absalom, having murdered his brother, quickly flees the city, no doubt anticipating that his father will be upset and exact some sort of punishment. But while David is angry, he declines either to punish or forgive his son. Instead, King David does nothing. For three years, King David does nothing. It's not clear in either instance why David didn't take action. As with much of the narrative, while he's king, David's character is ambiguous and his motives unknown to the reader. All we know is 
that David's military advisor, whose name is Joab, who is both David's right-hand man and professional fixer, who knows how to follow orders before they are even given, sees that David is thinking about his son after these three years, and so takes action. And using elaborate ruse, Joab convinces David to send for Absalom and bring him home. So David does this, but this is the extent of his action. And even when Absalom now returned, David continues to do nothing, and even refuses to see his son for two years. And eventually Absalom has had enough, and so he lights Joab's barley field on fire to get his attention and demand an audience with his father. And when he finally gets an audience with his father, a full five years after he has fled from Jerusalem, a full five years since either of them have seen one another, their interaction is brief and lacking even any words of conversation. David simply kisses his son, and they part ways. And it's not clear exactly what this kiss means. And we might suspect that it's a formal, kingly gesture, lacking anything even resembling a paternal love. It's clear, at least, that this is how Absalom interprets the kiss. And so the narrative shifts, as now Absalom, no longer on the run and longing to return to his father, begins to take action, to usurp his father's throne. For four years, he befriends all of the Israelite people coming into Jerusalem, seeking an audience with the king, convincing them that he would be a better king than his father. They believe him, as the text says, Absalom stole the hearts of the Israelites. And it probably didn't hurt that Absalom was apparently exceptionally good-looking. The scripture says that from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, there was nothing wrong with him. And his hair alone was so long and so luxurious that when he cut off all of it off once a year, the hair that he took off weighed a full five pounds. And so Absalom wins the hearts of everyone. And from here, the plot takes off. The threat from Absalom is so great that David flees from Jerusalem, taking his household and his loyal soldiers with him. And for three years, we watch as Absalom, excuse me, three chapters, we watch as Absalom makes moves to establish himself and overthrow his father. Well, unbeknownst to him, David has planted a spy among Absalom's most trusted advisors, undermining his plans and feeding David's intelligence all at the same time. It is deft and subtle political narrative. And finally, it all comes to a head as the two opposing armies meet each other in battle, Absalom leading his troops personally, and David waiting for news at the city gates. This is where our scripture reading begins, with David's final instruction to his departing troops, for my sake, protect the boy Absalom. It was a brutal battle between the two forces, and while Absalom had the greater number of troops, they were overcome by the tactics of David's seasoned warriors. Absalom's battalion is driven into the forest, where the forest itself is said to have devoured many warriors, and one of those is Absalom himself, whose hair, whose magnificent, long and flowing hair, gets tangled in a tree, leaving him hanging, suspended between heaven and earth, between life and death, his fate entirely out of his hands. He is met first by a soldier who refuses to touch him. A soldier who remembers David's words, protect the young man, Absalom. But when the soldier reports this to Joab, David's top military leader and right-hand man, 
Jobab cannot believe his ears and says he would have offered a reward for Absalom's death. The soldier insists, says that he would refuse a hundred times the hypothetical reward, and argues that he would never dare defy the king's order. But Joab has been with David a long time. Joab is trusted to do what David does not say. Is trusted to do what David cannot say. Many, many chapters earlier, Joab killed Hebron, a son of Saul, and a rival for the throne. And while David verbally condemned Joab's actions, nevertheless kept him as a close advisor. When Uriah needs to be killed, it is Joab who receives David's note, and Joab who does what needs to be done. There are certain things that a king cannot order out loud for the sake of plausible deniability. So Joab is trusted to follow the unspoken command protect the king at all costs. So while Joab heard the instruction to protect Absalom, he also knew what needed to be done to protect the king. So Joab put stakes through Absalom's heart and has his armor bearers finish the task. At this point, it's not clear what David's true desire is and how much is simply a political charade. Joab prepares a messenger, insisting that a foreigner be the one to bring the news, well aware that David has killed the messenger before to make it. But then we find David still waiting in the gates, and he interrupts the report of the messenger, breathlessly and anxiously to ask, Is my boy Absalom okay? And it is clear, David never wanted Absalom to die. The soldier delivers the report with joy, focusing not on Absalom's death, but the victory for the throne. May the enemies of my master the king, the man says, and all who rise up against you to hurt you end up like that young man. And David wilts and retreats, and for the first time in a long time, David bears his soul and his Threadnick Beaton said, David meant it, of course. 
If he could have done the boy's dying for him, he would have done it. If he could have prayed, paid the price for the boy's betrayal of him, he would have paid it. If he could have given his own life to make the boy alive again, he would have given it. But even a king can't do things like that, as later history was to prove takes ago. It's never possible to rewrite history, and it's rarely polite to try, particularly in conversation with the grieving. Even David's own wish for things to have been different is not an invitation to interject what could have been or should have been done. And anyway, it's nearly impossible to separate where the father's fault ends and the son's begins. This convoluted story of messy relationships and fractured family is not meant to be felt and not dissected. To envelop us to the lesson learned by David might weigh on our hearts as well. There is no cost too great for redemption. Loving another means offering everything we have for their restoration, holding nothing back in the hope of their salvation. And so years later, when Jesus would teach his followers to love and not hate their enemies, it would be a lesson well familiar to the one who wept bitterly over a messenger's jubilant report of the destruction of his enemy. And when Jesus answered a question from Peter about forgiving a brother seven times by instructing him instead to forgive 77 or even 70 times seven times, David would know well that withheld forgiveness comes at a great cost. Like the stacking of grain on a chessboard, what seems at first a minor loss quickly becomes too great to bear. And when Paul would cite the words of an early Christian hymn in his letter to the Philippians to describe the person of Christ, they would surely resonate in David's heart as if he had written that himself. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And David, who wished he could have known how to give up being king for the sake of his son, who wished he could have emptied himself to the point of death to save a beloved child, would no doubt have delighted in Paul's instruction to adopt this same attitude which was in Christ Jesus. As we live in the heart of Christ, we learn to love as Christ, to forget our own good, to care for the good of one And so the people of God and the church in all the years since bear the weight of this lesson on the heart. There is no cost too great for any of God's children. Given the chance, we'll risk everything we have. We'll try new things that might well fit. We'll step out of our comfort zone and reach for things well out of reach. We'll love with abandon, knowing it will break our hearts. We'll put it all on the line and gladly lose it all for the chance to welcome anyone back into the family of God. It's what God did first for us.
in the grace of God who gave up everything for our sake. We trust that even Absalom and David are not without hope. For in the grief of loss and death, of guilt and unforgiveness, we know that there is nothing God would not give for their restoration. We trust that even Absalom and David may one day yet be reunited, might resolve their conflicts, might find peace in forgiveness, and might renew their relationship under the watchful eye of the one who doesn't let any children slip away. Thanks be Friends, let us continue in worship as we sing together our next hymn, which is Precious Lord, Take My Hand, number 474 in the hymnal. Watch my little words will be on the screen. Let us sing. 